can't get enough of the podcast? Lucky for you, our video IQ platform on adorebeauty.com.au houses thousands of articles on skincare, makeup, hair care, and more. Plus, you can find a heap of video tutorials, ingredient spotlights, and brand breakdowns on our YouTube channel. Just click on Beauty IQ in the menu bar of the website or app or search Adore Beauty on YouTube for more beauty content. Welcome everybody to Beauty IQ, the podcast. I'm your host, Joanna Fleming. And I am your co-host, Hannah First. Joe, I really love when people send me things that they think that I'll like on Instagram. Same. They'll see like <laughs> number plate that says like JLo69. I don't know if someone sent me that, <laughs> but there was something like that that someone sent me. If that's available, I want it. <laughs> <laughs> but I really loved this one that I got sent. So it's a billboard. I don't know where this billboard is, but I'm going to text it to you now. I'm quite shocked that this was like on a billboard. So basically it says, it's okay to lose your poo emoji. So it's okay to lose your sometimes because if you don't, (laughs) you'll end up full of poo emoji. I love that. That doesn't look like it's in Australia, but oh, Oh, no, it says Melbourne down the bottom. So it says Melbourne's best colonic irrigation clinic. It's on Chapel Street and in St Kilda (laughs) and in the city. (laughs) They have a 1300 number and there was no branding. So I didn't actually know which colonic irrigation clinic it was, but really smart marketing, in my opinion. That is smart advertising. I like that. Yeah. So if you ever do see anything like that around, please send in. I wonder if one of our audience members, I'm sure that they've gone and had clinics before, but would you be willing to record it for us? Joe, (laughs) so that we could then air the experience. Not even I would do that. I know, but some of our listeners are a little bit more willing to bear all. They don't have as much to lose. (laughs) Anyway, what is on today's episode, Joe? So on today's episode, we are chatting to Dr. Lucinda all about period pain. And then because October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and I had a lovely follower reach out who's actually battling breast cancer right now and wanted some advice on what skincare she can use during her treatment treatment. We have Dr. Catherine Armour joining us to talk about chemo-appropriate skincare. So join us for that. And of course, our products we didn't know we needed. Okay. Our resident GP, Dr. Lucinda, is back in the house. Welcome. Hi, everybody. Nice to be back. Today, we're talking period pain, which I'm shocked that we haven't already discussed. Yeah. We've discussed getting diarrhea when you are getting a period, but we haven't discussed period pain. How did we get past that? But do you get period pain? I don't. I don't either. So that's probably why we just we didn't, didn't need a yeah. GP consultation with Dr. Lucinda. Yes. <laughs> that's true. It's been like personal experiences. Yes. Most of the stuff we talk to you about is because exactly. we're just sort of find out for ourselves. Love it. <laughs> we're selfish. So Dr. Lucinda, can you please explain for us what actually causes the period pain? The period pain is caused by our uterus, otherwise known as our womb, contracting to help us sort of get rid of the blood from our period itself. And it's caused by a chemical that's produced in the womb lining called prostaglandin. And it's the same stuff that happens when we're in childbirth as well, as prostaglandin comes into play. Okay, so the prostaglandin makes it contract. And so when you are having a baby, is that what happens when you're in labor? And then that pushes the baby out. Like on another level. Another level. That is so interesting. The body is amazing. So some people are, and I'm going to touch more on this later, but just quickly, some people are more prone to getting period pain. Like Hannah and I don't really get it. 
but some friends of mine get awful period pain. So there's some people's prostaglandin levels a lot higher than others or they produce more of it or something? Yep. So that's prostaglandin level is definitely related to the amount of uterine contraction. And we know that because there's medications that we use that sort of all, you know, hormone levels in our blood that affect prostaglandin level and then can either increase contractions or reduce contractions. But there's so many different variables and we need more research into female health. Generally speaking, there is a massive lack of it. But there have been studies that have shown, you know, what could sort of impact on it otherwise. And like you were saying, like you guys don't have period pains and that's okay. You know, you don't have to have period pains. It is normal. Whereas, as you mentioned, like some people can have really bad period pains. And if it's anything that's like stopping you from leaving the house you know that's not normal you need to go and see someone for that just in case it might be something but it could be so many other things as well that can impact on it so for example like stress is actually proven to be something that can impact on your period pain and it's all because it releases hormones like adrenaline and cortisol which impacts on prostaglandin production and this is where it sort of all interlinks even your genetics like there's some sort of potential connection if you've got a family history of really bad period pain but not to say that that's definitely going to be the case as well they still need a bit more information on that these are like the main things that they've sort of found out but not having had any children people tend to have more period pain if they haven't had that and that's because after childbirth these are the theories anyways it's all theoretical but like you're good science behind it but after childbirth your womb sort of releases less prostaglandin in general and the nerves actually supplying the womb they may not be as responsive to pain because in your last part of your pregnancy they say that sort of the the nerves become less sort of sensitive in that kind of sense thank goodness to sort of like help people with childbirth and then lastly age can be sort of um, a natural factor so as we get older the period pains tend to improve with time yeah so those are the natural kind of factors as it were Can period pain manifest differently for different types of people in different parts of the body? Yeah, totally. The most normal kind of period pain is sort of like lower abdominal cramping that basically gets a little bit, you know, gets better with sort of normal pain relief, which I'm sure we'll touch upon later. But, you know, period pain can vary from no pain at all to disabling period pain. And when it comes to location, it can definitely like refer to other areas I get an achy lower back. Interesting. Do you get anything, Hannah, like that? Or literally don't know when my period's coming and I don't even know. Like it's so quick. Love. That's how she bled through her jeans at work once. <laughs> God, yeah, thanks, Joe, for mentioning that again. It kind of comes so quick. Then it disappears so quick. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for people listening that don't have that experience. But it's honestly just like the dream period, I feel like yeah, for me. It's a dream. But that's awesome. And it gives us all hope that that exists. <laughs> I did actually think I was like, God, this period, my period's so light. I must have problems with like, for some reason in my stupid brain, I thought that had to do with fertility, but I actually, my fertility is good. So yeah, I just was, I lucked out in some departments and not in others. So 
<laughs> well, that is just life in general, isn't it? It has to be some yin and yang somewhere. But yeah, basically the period pain can also refer to other areas like the back, the thighs and the buttocks. And that's all just because the nerves are all supplied by that pelvic area. So it's all interconnected in that way. For people that do get period pain, what is the best way to manage it? So there are lots and lots of options available, which is really good and stuff that people wouldn't even think about. So there's things that we can do to help prevent period pain or like reduce the severity of it. And just to bear in mind, our bodies are just like so interesting, but our periods are basically a telltale sign of what our life's been like generally like the weeks preceding so if you've had a really stressful time if you've not been eating really well if you've not been exercising all of those things contribute to worsening potentially off your period and so the key here with preventative health in general for like all things really isn't it not just period pain but your general health and well-being is consistency and trying to look after yourself and that's because like for example eating lots of vegetables and fruit and things like fish for example they are anti-inflammatory type foods and so they really do help with the inflammation that for example is in period pain as well as some other conditions and there's sort of evidence sort of going on now towards sort of like do you reduce pro-inflammatory foods things like red meat things like dairy things like processed foods but there still needs to be more evidence to sort of promote that but definitely can recommend that eating lots of fruit and veggies make it as colorful as possible on every plate if you can that's the way to go and then things like exercise so the reason why exercise is good like I always hate it when doctors are like exercise 20 minutes a day and everything because like no one knows why this works but it's because it helps well it releases endorphins which is our natural painkiller of the body not only just our happy hormone and so that's why it really does work and I'm not talking go wild and go and do hit workouts and, and you know 5k runs even just going out for a walk is enough you know and being out in nature anyways is so good for our mental health like if you can try and get out for 20 minutes a day into nature that will be awesome in many different levels and that also ties in really well with stress management as well which we mentioned earlier about the adrenaline cortisol affecting your prostaglandins and also making sure that you don't skimp on sleep sleep is so important for stress management in general so those are kind of like the natural things that we can do as preventative care and then we're moving on to like actual pain relief now. So heat is a really good method actually of treating your uterine contractions because it relaxes the muscles. And interestingly enough, the heat and pain nerve transmitters, they go along the same pathways. And so when you put heat on something or cold on something, but I wouldn't recommend cold for your periods, it basically almost tricks the brain because it's like stimulating the same pathway. So that's why that can also be helpful. And then things like painkillers. So the best evidence is for non-steroid anti-inflammatories, otherwise known as NSAIDs, which are like ew, the ibuprofen or the methanamic acid or Ponstan basically. And that's because they basically affect prostaglandin activity again, which is very interesting. The same thing goes for hormonal contraception. Like it doesn't matter which form of hormonal contraception, but again, it reduces prostaglandin production by thinning the lining of the uterus, which is where it's produced. Yeah, this is like a long list, but like there's so many <laughs> different things. And then there's kind of like, again, more natural things like acupuncture. And then we've got the TENS machine. 
Yes, this is what I was going to ask you. So we just started stocking a TENS machine. Oh, really? I've never used Yeah, yeah, we did. So I would love to get your thoughts on it because I don't know anything about them, really. I've heard about them on TikTok. That's about it. Okay, well, there are studies that show that it can be beneficial, more so along other forms of treatment as well, like a bit of pain relief for a bit of heat, that type of thing. It's basically called transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. So they're those pads that you attach overlying your skin area. And the way in which they feel it works is by altering the body's ability to receive or perceive pain signals rather than actually directly affecting the contractions itself. And by stimulating the release of endorphins as well, our natural painkillers. That's the theory behind it. And it's used for so many different things, you know, like tennis elbow, you know, like it's for lots of different reasons. The evidence is for the high-frequency TENS machines. So that's the important thing there. And I've got a friend that every time she gets her period, she's in so much pain that she's, like, vomiting. Like, it's very disabling for her. So my last question for you was we know that period pain is quite common and, you know, some mild period pains when you're getting a period or you have your period is common. But where do we draw the line between what's normal and what's not? And at what stage should you see a GP? Because I think a lot of women or, you know, those with uteruses grow up and they go, okay, well, this is normal for me and that's just life. And they never know that that's actually not quite normal and that something maybe is not quite right. Absolutely. And that's so sad because I just feel like that's like a whole societal issue. Like we're just meant to feel this. We're meant to deal with this. And we're totally not. You know, the majority of women do tend to get period pain, but also the majority of those women who have severe period pain or they don't seek medical attention. And that's really sad. Hopefully by doing this podcast as well, like you guys are raising awareness of that and that it's not okay. And see your GP. It doesn't mean that you've got an underlying medical condition condition that's causing it like five percent of period pain is, is you know around that is caused by like an underlying medical condition but there's so many things that GPs can do to sort of make sure to rule it out but essentially what you're looking at here are first of all if you are worried about your period pain if you're worried that you've got some unusual symptoms like vomiting like I'd say that's pretty severe you know if if she's doing that I really hope that she goes and sees her GP and has a chat about it if it's interfering with your daily activities like you're struggling to look after your kids or do your chores or go out of the house go to work or if the pain's at all severe in any way because everyone has a different experience of period pain like I don't want anyone to be like is mine severe or am I just a wuss like yeah don't do that you are your own person like if it's really bad for you it's really bad for you it's not for anyone else to say that's good advice it's normal for period pain to be like one or two days before your period first couple of days of your period but if it's going a lot longer than that either way again another reason to go and see a doctor as well well thank you so much for all of that info and advice dr lucinda it's always great to chat to you thanks for joining us pleasure So October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month and joining us today we have Dr. Catherine Armour from Bespoke Skin Technology uh, to join us to chat about what skincare you can use when you're undergoing chemotherapy. So according to the National Breast Cancer Foundation in Australia, breast cancer is the second most commonly diagnosed cancer in Australia. 
approximately 57 Australians are diagnosed each and every day, and that equates to over 20,000 Australians diagnosed with breast cancer each year, with nine people losing their lives to the disease every day. Although the five-year survival rate has increased from 76 to 92% and rising since 1994 thanks to research, there is still progress to be made to stop deaths from breast cancer. By targeting the remaining 8% who don't live past this survival rate, National Breast Cancer Foundation's goal is to reach zero deaths from breast cancer. So to join us today, as I mentioned, we've got Dr. Catherine Armour. Thank you for joining us today. Dr. Catherine is a dermatologist, so she's fully equipped with all the information to share. Welcome back to the potty. Thanks. Thanks for having me on again. Excited to chat with you both. And you just mentioned that you went to do school drop-off and you actually had an experience with a school mum. Tell us about that before we jump into it. Yeah, I just bumped into a beautiful school mum who I know quite well and put my foot in my mouth slightly by commenting on how gorgeous her hair looked. And yeah, she told me she's in the middle of treatment for breast cancer. She's had surgery and she's just embarking on her journey with chemotherapy and we started talking about skin. So this morning's discussion is particularly apt. And it came about because I actually did have a follower reach out to me and let me know that she's also going through this unfortunate journey and we wish her all the best as well. I'm sure she's listening to this episode quite keenly. So Catherine, can we start with what happens to your skin when you're having cancer treatments such as chemo? So I guess we'd sort of pricey cancer therapy with the fact that there's all different types of cancer therapies and I'm sure you're both aware from chemotherapy, radiotherapy, hormonal stem cell and bone marrow transplant as well as immunotherapy and surgery. But I think we often focus on chemotherapy because that's a huge part of many cancer patients' treatment journey. So in doing its really important job, chemotherapy interferes with the way that cells of the body divide and reproduce themselves. So both healthy cells and cancer cells will be affected by chemotherapy. And in particular, cells that divide and grow really rapidly are most affected. And that tends to include the skin as well as our hair and nails, which are part of the skin. These effects are quite variable. They're going to depend on the chemotherapy agent or agents being used, the dose, the length of the treatment, and if you're having other treatments such as radiotherapy. So skin, nail and hair reactions, I said, are, are common and the majority of intravenous and chemotherapy agents will cause sort of mild to moderate skin reactions at some stage during your cancer journey. Often they're more nuisance side effects such as dry skin, sort of irritability and itchiness. But there are a whole swathe of rashes that can occur, which we'll touch on. There's sun sensitivity or photosensitivity, which can occur during your treatment, but also for some months after you finish chemotherapy as well. Nail problems, new areas of skin pigmentation can occur and, you know, rashes can unfortunately occasionally also be quite severe, sort of talk things like mouth ulceration, blistering, thickening of the skin and acne type rashes. And one of the commonest side effects is, of course, hair loss, which is, you know, has a huge impact on self-image. And just to briefly, I guess, touch also on radiotherapy, because particularly in breast cancer, that's still a really important part of treatment for some women. Again, it's going to depend on dose and site and number of treatments uh, in terms of impact. 
Skin changes can be quite mild, so sort of redness like a sunburn type reaction, but some patients also experience peeling of the skin or even ulceration. So there's a whole spectrum there. And so how can you protect and soothe your skin during treatments like chemotherapy? So I think just like, you know, looking after your whole self when you're undergoing such an important journey, you want to treat your skin really gently and carefully and be super kind to it. So, I mean, typical thing for a dermatologist to say, but it's really important. You, Of course, if you're outdoors, you want to protect yourself daily from the sun because certain chemotherapy agents, you know, will not only make you burn more readily, but some of them over time do impart an increased risk of skin cancer. So that's not, not something you don't need additional problems. So broad spectrum UVA and UVB blocking sunscreen, hat and clothing to cover up. Because skin is often quite dry and irritable, it's important to try and moisturise, you know, once or ideally twice daily or more with a really nourishing, fragrance-free moisturiser. And I think it's uh, that's particularly important after showering or or bathing. And just listen to your skin in terms of what kind of moisturiser you need. So if your skin is really dry, then you need to look for a cream or a balm. If you're not so dry, then a lotion is perfectly adequate. You then want to sort of avoid anything that will dry or irritate the skin. So that includes soap and bubble bath. So just substitute there for a soap-free wash. As much as you're able to, you want to probably try and shower with kind of warm rather than hot water because hot water is also quite drying on the skin. And then wear sort of soft or loose clothing that doesn't, you know, doesn't have tight seams that will kind of rub and traumatise the skin. So soft and cotton or other natural fibres like bamboo are ideal. So would you say brands kind of like La Roche-Posay, CeraVe, Bioderma, these kinds of brands that are very gentle, often used for people that have dry, irritable skin would be appropriate? A hundred percent, absolutely. So any of the big pharmacy brands that suggest that they're fragrance-free and mm. that they're for dry and sensitive skin, or even if you're very dry, look for some of the moisturisers and soap-free washes that are specifically for patients with eczema because they'll contain ceramides and other skin barrier-boosting ingredients. It's a good tip. Now, is it common long-term to develop skin-related side effects from chemo? I know you said that some agents can increase your chance of skin cancer down the track. Is there anything else that you should be wary of once you've finished treatment in reintroducing skincare? I think know that you may, if you have developed a bit of photosensitivity mm-hmm. during your treatment, be aware that that can go on for some months after you finish your treatment. So mm-hmm. sort of stick with your sun protection regimen. Yeah, just and of course that if you're still sun sensitive, then you're probably going to want to go quite carefully with reintroducing skincare or cosmeceuticals that can make you a bit sun sensitive. So that's going to be our retinoids or vitamin A's, which we all love. Mm-hmm. And AH, certain, you know, the, the stronger AHAs such as glycolic acid. So you just want to, I think, reintroduce them when you feel that your skin is back to its robust normal self, which mm-hmm. may be a few months after you finish your treatment. And how about hair? Because you mentioned that earlier. Obviously, most of us would know that with chemotherapy often comes hair loss. When your hair is starting to grow back, are you likely to notice changes to hair density or how coarse your hair is? Can it completely change when it grows back? All of those things can happen, Joe. yes. Mm-hmm. So often people, older women, 
uh, my age and older <laughs> might uh, might notice that instead of their hair growing back color that it was, sometimes they'll notice their hair may grow back gray or white. Mm-hmm. Or it may grow back in a patchy fashion, so they may have some sort of dark or blonde hairs and some grey or white hairs. Women often notice that their hair may be coarser than previously or even curly when it was straight or wavy previously. So those things are possible. I mean, you may grow back your previous hair, but often it's a bit finer uh, and not quite as robust for some time afterwards. All sorts of things are possible. (laughs) (laughs) So we've sort of talked about kinds of nourishing, moisturizers and soaps to use. I would assume that probably people would have some questions on whether they can still use their active ingredients. Like are there certain ingredients that they really need to avoid when using, say, if they decide that they want to use a serum? While you're having chemotherapy, I would really go pretty light on actives. No serums, really. I think you could use things with niacinamide. I think niacinamide, peptides would be okay. Bacuchiol would actually be okay. Like if you really can't let go of your, you know, your retinoid, you could very carefully use Bacuchiol because it does tend to be much less irritating than retinoids or not at all. And of course, it doesn't photosensitize. I think the thing to say is I would probably, you know, do one ingredient at a time and you're going to have to look for serums that are fragrance-free because fragrance is a common cause of irritation and it's also a you know a reasonably common cause of allergic contact dermatitis in the dermatologist world so you just you really want to avoid all fragrance skincare so i think i mean there are plenty of brands now that don't use fragrance as long as you stick to to gentle things so the things you really want to avoid i think are retinoids vitamin C and AHAs because they are probably, you know, they're all great ingredients, don't get me wrong, but Mm. they are some of the commonest causes of, you know, of rashes, even when your skin is at its most robust. And you mentioned before the importance of looking after yourself when you're going through this kind of treatment. And I wondered if you could share with us the beauty treatments that you can and can't have. Are there absolute no-nos? You mentioned before the photosensitivity. So, probably lasers and things like that are out of the question and it's something that you're often asked in a consult if you're having cancer treatment or you currently have cancer just in case what's the reason for that so one of the things yes light sensitivity is of course a big one and whilst it's not common yes any laser i mean lasers are light any kind of light based procedure could potentially give you a photosensitizing reaction probably a little bit of a waste of your time if your skin is still undergoing you know a number of changes from your treatment i would plan to do any kind of laser treatments as something to treat yourself and make yourself feel really good when you've finished your journey The main things to avoid are any procedure with a risk of infection or anything that's going to cause skin or hair or nail trauma. They should really be delayed until you've finished your cancer treatment. So I'd avoid, as we said, lasers, particularly any kind of resurfacing laser, peels, waxing even because you know of course your skin's going to often be more fragile and definitely no artificial nails hair or eyelash extensions we can talk a bit more about nails so I mean I know that takes out a lot of procedures but even like a lovely hydrating nourishing facial with non-fragrance products can still be quite uplifting or 
a massage with non-fragranced oils, you know, those sorts of things would be fine. And you did just touch on nails. So is there anything in particular chemo patients should do to help with their nails? Absolutely, because there are just a whole myriad of things that can happen to your nails during chemotherapy. Because the nails can get quite fragile and often they can separate from the nail plate itself, which is the bit that we cut and manicure, etc. that will often separate from the nail bed, meaning it'll catch quite readily. It's important to keep your nails short so that they won't catch and tear. If you do it whenever you're dishwashing, I mean, quite frankly, everyone should have their hands in gloves whenever they touch dishwater anyway, but it's particularly important if you're undergoing cancer treatment. So if you're doing kind of tasks around the house, doing anything in the garden, washing dishes, rubber gloves or cotton under rubber gloves is really important. Cutting your cuticles, manicures and pedicures outside of your own home are absolutely out because... We've got to think about the cuticle. I know we often spend a lot of time sort of maligning the cuticle, but the cuticle is like the raincoat for your nail. You know, your nail actually grows from the matrix, which is sort of further down the your finger, if you like. And so if we damage the cuticle, then that's a real portal of entry for bugs that can cause infection and inflammation of the nail fold. And paronychia, which is infection or inflammation of the nail fold, is you know, a reasonably common thing in chemotherapy patients anyway, and it is so painful. So we really want to avoid anything that will cause that. Just make sure you use like a, a nourishing hand cream that's fragrance-free a couple of times a day, particularly before bed to keep that skin around the nails nice and soft and avoid wearing shoes that are too tight. So it's probably not a time for your cool pointy stilettos just because, again, that will increase your risk of an ingrown toenail and paranoia or nail fold inflammation. And then finally, if you're sort of getting a sense that you might have a, a nail infection, something you can do at home before going off to seek medical advice would be to even just soak your nails for about 15 minutes and if you just mix sort of equal parts of white vinegar and tap water that's actually quite good for getting rid of some bugs that can infect the nail fold and if you know that's not helping you then it is important to see your oncologist or gp or dermatologist for some antibiotics if your nail fold is really painful Gosh, well, there's a lot of information there to digest and we do really feel for anyone that's going through chemotherapy or cancer treatment at the moment and our best wishes are with you. Thank you so much, Dr. Catherine Armour, for joining us today to share all that information. Such a pleasure. And yes, as you say to anyone going through that journey, our, our thoughts and best wishes are with them. Products we didn't know we needed, Hannah. I'm going to have to take a shot for this one. Oh, it's. <laughs> I've been told I talk about Cicaplast B5 too much, too but much. this is actually a serum version oh, perfect. of the cream. So yeah. at this stage, I believe that the original Cicaplast B5 balm is being reformulated mm-hmm. just to be better, but they've come out with the Cicaplast B5 serum. Now mm-hmm. it's kind of designed to do the same thing, but it's obviously in a serum form. Yeah. So reducing transepidermal water loss, comforting the skin, helping with repair, post-procedure, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It is a really, really nice texture. Do you want to give it a crack? How's oh, it yeah, feel? it's nice. Yeah. It's like Hydrating. very, very lightweight. So that would be great if you have impaired your barrier mm. or you've got very reactive or sensitive skin and you don't know what else to use. I would grab that from Adore Beauty <gasps> or I think they probably have it at Chemist Warehouse as well. But- <laughs> 
That is my product today. I don't want to waste any. I've dripped some over the side, so I'm just going to rub that into the backs of my Mr. Burns hands. Very nice. That's my product. I didn't know I needed for today. So I cannot for the life of me remember if I did this product. I'm 99% sure I didn't. And I think Mm. we interviewed Jo Malone from Jo Loves and I think we were talking about it with her. Mm -hmm. I just can't remember sometimes. I can't remember if you did it either. I know there's a video of you using it. Yeah, but I don't think I've spoken about it on this podcast. The reason I wanted to speak about it was because this is a really good travel friendly Mm. fragrance option because firstly fragrance bottles can be quite heavy what happened to me in thailand was one of the cleaners accidentally knocked a like a mini fragrance and it smashed so fragrance can be a little bit tricky i think to travel with Mm. if you're you know having to pack things up and pack things down and they're also quite heavy because they're usually in really nice bottles and like that's the whole thing with fragrance so joe had said in that episode she wanted to like create something that had never been created in the marketplace for fragrance was that what she said something along those lines yeah and she has so this is called a fragrance paintbrush gel it's like the most interesting product Mm. so basically the way that it works is you paint yourself so can i smell and that's quite strong as well Mm. that's a nice fragrance what is that joe loves by joe loves Mm. is that right joe by joe Joe by joe loves (laughs) that's how you do it so you literally will just push it and paint it on like a paintbrush it's also refillable, so you can buy these little refillable because they're like gel. It's like gel fragrance. Yeah, yeah. So you can buy these refillables and you can, and it is so lightweight. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, that's in your handbag. So easy to keep so in your handbag. So easy to keep in your handbag. So if yeah. you actually, because I have the fragrance as well. Does it dry down quickly on your yeah. hand? Oh, it's already gone. Yeah. So if you're looking for something to just chuck in the handbag or you travel a lot and you just want to chuck it in, I would really recommend mm. giving these a go. Plus Joe Loves does. I think I just love all the fragrances. Yeah. I think they're so nice. So that's mine. So two of our favorite topics poo and skincare. Yeah. (laughs) Kim Kardashian's all over both. So for those that listened to the bonus episode that I did with Yads about reviewing the Skin by Kim skincare range, I'd read this thing in the New York Times that she'd said, and I wanted to ask you the same question. Mm -hmm. Have you heard this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I listened to the episode. Yeah. (laughs) If you told me that I literally had to eat poop every single day and I would look younger, I might. Mm. I just might. So- would you would you eat poop every single day for eternal youth? It's a hard one. Please say no. <laughs> what kind of poop? Is it human poop? Of course. Uh, Your own poop. Oh, uh, no. What animal poops better? Oh, like bird poo seems inoffensive, <laughs> you know? Like what lengths would you go to for eternal youth? I wouldn't eat poo. Okay. Well, would you eat meat every day? Yes. Well, yeah. yeah, I yeah. probably and you're would. you're a vegetarian. Yeah, yeah I probably okay. would. I'd have to build those enzymes up. I'd yes. probably be constipated for yeah. quite a few weeks, <laughs> but I'm sure I'd get used to it in mm. time. Would you drink urine? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, there's no oversight over this podcast. Yeah. Joanna approves it. So, <laughs> so I'm excited for this to go live. Yeah. Yes. Would I drink pee? Mm. You know what? If I had to, I'd drink heaps of water. Yeah. And pee into a cup and then yeah. quickly down quickly it. Quickly down it. Yeah. And then, you know, a mint or brush yeah. my teeth. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that'd be all right. As far as we know, <laughs> poo and urine and bird poo don't 
make you look any younger. So I just like sometimes Kim comes out with things and I'm like, God, she's so honest about how vain she is. It's yeah. like it's I actually love that. Good though. on her for being so honest. I think you should just be able to yeah. say what you're thinking. Yeah. Because that's she means that. <laughs> yeah. And she's she been media trained she's quite she has extensively. <laughs> All right, guys, on that note. Yeah, on that note, we'll uh, catch you next week. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends. It helps other people to discover us. And also, we really want to know what you thought about this podcast. So if you can leave us a review, that would be much appreciated.